0: You are listening to CJSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from the University of Calgary campus radio station located on Treaty 7 land. I would like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The City of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. We are all Treaty people. Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimfni Dronick.
1: And I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. This month I sit down with Guy Gabriel K, who was in town to promote his newest novel, A Brightness Long Ago. And later, we have an interview with Naomi Lewis. Naomi has recently just published a memoir titled Tiny Lights for Travelers, in which she travels around the European countryside retracing her grandfather's footsteps as he fled from the Nazis during World War II.
0: Our show airs at 11 a.m. and 8 p.m. on the third Tuesday of every month, and if you've missed it live, you can look for the podcasts at cjsw.com.
1: Guy Gabriel Kay is the international best-selling author of 14 novels, including most recently Children of Earth and Sky, He's been awarded the International Goliard's Prize for his work in the literature of the fantastic and won the World Fantasy Award for Isabel in 2008. In 2014, he was named to the Order of Canada, the country's highest civilian honour. Guy Gabriel K, thanks for joining us on Writer's Block. It's a
2: pleasure to be here back in Calgary.
1: So without giving too much away of the story, can you tell our listeners about your latest novel, A Brightness Long Ago?
2: You know what, the, without giving too much away has become one of the big cultural things of the day. People are being assaulted for spoilers about books and television shows. It's a really interesting phenomenon. So without giving too much away, uh, this one is inspired by 15th century Italy, the Renaissance. Uh, the core story is about a historically accurate feud between the two most powerful mercenary leaders who were also uh, commanders of small cities. Uh, They hated each other, uh, lifelong hatred. That was the anchoring story around which the novel builds, but it's not told by them for the most part. The framework is a number of people, in many instances, much younger people in their 20s who get caught up on the margins and sometimes near to the center of that feud. One young man who is the son of a tailor whose intelligence young came to the attention of clerics and distinguished people and he ended up getting an education beyond his class. And he ends up entangled with them. And two young women, because I'm always trying to work in strong female characters into the books, uh, one of them, an aristocrat who is completely resistant to the expectations for women in her class, which were either or. You make a good marriage or you go into an enemy. Right. And those were the options you had. And the other one is a woman of no distinguished birth at all who is a healer. And she is making the even riskier life choice of trying to live on her own, survive by her wits and skills without the structure of a family protecting and surrounding her. And these three people, the young man and the two young women, are the ones who are our framing characters for the most part right. as the story spins out.
1: And so far it's been a great read for me. It's been it's been awesome. Um, and so you draw on a lot of cultural histories and mythologies throughout your career, throughout your writing. Um, why has that been important to you as a, as a writer?
2: It's really hard to look back and try to sort out why something began to obsess you when you were a teenager or That's younger. That's true, yeah. It's hard to put a finger on why. You could certainly look back and say, this is true of me. But from very early, I was fascinated by myths and legends from, uh, from The Elite and the Odyssey to Robin Hood and King Arthur. Uh, those things fascinated me. My first reading passions were not fantasy. They were historical fiction, mm. the great historical fiction yeah. writers for young adults, and then moving fairly early for me into the adult historical fiction writers. I've always been fascinated by the past. I think that uh, I agree with someone who says that uh, Santayana wrote that those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Uh, To some degree, all of my books are written with a view to helping us understand the past, even with that quarter turn to the fantastic I use. I should say not even... It's not even with. I think it's because of. I think that quarter turn can help contemporary readers relate more directly to the characters in a story. They're not just people in a very specific time and place. That quarter turn lets us start to see the universal.
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: What do you enjoy most about compiling the research in your novels? The honest truth is that the research is my favorite part. Oh, yeah. The research is when I'm just learning things, Cody. I don't have any responsibilities yet. I'm reading things and taking notes. I'm looking up academics who've done work in a particular field. I'm finding them online and I'm harassing them with emails. (laughs) And I've made some very good friends this way. People who've spent their lives working in a field that I'm trying to learn yep. as much as I can just about
1: just as me. into the research as you are, and yeah, that'd be a good way to make friends. <laughs> yeah.
2: Have you ever heard of the term uh, grad student syndrome? I don't know if I have. No. Grad student syndrome is the phenomenon when you feel you have to get one more footnote or one more <laughs> reference chased down before you could start writing your dissertation. So ultimately, it's the perfect stalling tactic. Okay. I know a couple people like that. <laughs> and you know one across the table from me right now. There right, Because I'm prone to it. I have to fight that impulse and say nothing will come of this unless I start
1: writing page one word one. Mm. A Brightness Long Ago is heavily influenced by Renaissance Italy. Um, what attracted you to that time period, um, and how is it linked to your previous work?
2: Uh my best answer to what drew me there is a variant of how not. It's such an extraordinarily compelling, dramatic period of time. And one of the things the Renaissance does for me, and I try to bring it out in brightness, is that we think of it as this extraordinarily Glittering, glamorous time, we think Michelangelo and Leonardo and the Medici. Yep. We think of the, the, uh, the high-end aspect of it. But the Renaissance was also a time of extreme violence, steady, just about nonstop warfare within Italy, uh, poverty, uh, disease, Starvation when the crops failed, and often the crops failed because armies went through a territory right. and destroyed the fields or raided the crops.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, normally when I think Renaissance, it's like, yeah, paintings and art and, oh, we're, we're moving out of the Middle Ages, but it very much had the same a lot very of the same problems. Most
2: times and places have that, but the Renaissance sharpened it for me because of, just as you said, our default assumption it's about the glamorous side of it and i've wanted in the book i try in all my books but this one it's really focused i wanted to underscore how extreme sophistication and culture coexisted
1: with extreme hardship and violence that's really that's really cool you are very well traveled and have lived in a variety of different countries such as france and china uh what were those experiences like And how is it reflected in your writing? Well, I used to say that
2: I had writer friends who could evoke olive groves and vineyards while looking at the streetcar going past their window. And I did better looking out at olive groves and vineyards.
1: I bet, yeah.
2: yeah. And that was true when I was younger. Now I think, to a certain degree, I've banked those images that I have had. I've been lucky enough to have lived and worked in a wide variety of places. Uh, And the images, the landscapes, the history, the people in many of these countries are... uh, I've got them to a certain degree. They're internalized. So those olive groves and vineyards are accessible for me without actually being there. Having said that, there's... A lot to be said about writing in Tuscany as opposed to downtown Toronto.
1: Yeah, that's true. So you have this wealth of memories that you can call on. That's great. I really enjoy your thoughtful insight into human nature, as well as the gift you have for characterization and dialogue. Where do you draw that inspiration from?
2: I don't think it's a matter of inspiration so much, Cody, as trying to do everything I can to engage the reader as deeply as possible with the characters in the book. Uh, I've never accepted the the demarcation, the dividing line that our culture has between books that are all about page-turning plot and books that are about character and language. I say it's our job to try to deliver all of it if you can. You may fail. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the odds are good she'll fail for some (laughs) people because they bring their own tastes of what they want. So the inspiration for me is mainly you. The inspiration is that I want to work with everything I can to bring the reader into a situation where she's awake at 3 in the morning turning pages to find out what happens next, but also one year or five years later something happens. In their life, something happens in their world that makes them think, that reminds me of something I read in a book by Kay five years ago. Mm. So it's that double aspect of trying to engage you intensely now and have the story stay with you. And that's where the desire, the impulse, even the need to try to make dialogue, characterization, all of these things as Powerful
1: as I can make them. You want it to resonate with people. Yeah. Your characters in this story tend to be more ordinary, vulnerable people instead of all powerful beings, which isn't typical of epic fantasies. Um, what is the reason you chose to create these types of characters? Well, for one thing, I'm not writing epic fantasy, so it's
2: it's not uh, it's not something I would do by aspiration or intention to uh, work with those tropes and elements, which are perfectly viable tropes for a certain kind of fiction. Right. But my fiction, my writing, my hope, the hope I have of what I want to induce in the reader is a response to vivid characters, to people who come to matter to you. There was a woman in the signing lineup in Edmonton Uh, two nights ago, Mm -hmm. who said that she knew in her late teenage years in university that she was going to be a difficult woman, she said. (laughs) And she said, reading Tigana, my fourth novel, Mm -hmm. felt like it gave her permission to be a
1: difficult woman. To be herself, really.
2: What an extraordinary thing for a writer to hear from a reader. I'm still moved by that.
1: I bet, yeah.
2: But that's why, Cody, that's why I'm not going to go in the direction of all-powerful beings or horrifically evil antagonists or stunningly virtuous protagonists. Mm -hmm. It's also why I'm not going to go to a thoroughly and entirely pessimistic view of the world, whether today or the past. I'm going to try to show the darker, more violent, uglier elements in society then and now. But it's also part of my job to remind people that there are those out there who are resistant to that, whose lives represent an opposition to that violence and hostility and
1: viciousness. Because there's a whole spectrum of human emotion, right? It's nobody's all good or all bad. It's always in in between. It's more realistic, I guess, the characters. Um, Early in your career, you famously worked with Christopher Tolkien on The Silmarillion. What was that experience like, and how is it reflected in your writing today? There are a number of different aspects that that
2: uh, that relates to. In the first place, I was young. Mm -hmm. I was moving from uh, suburban Winnipeg to the English countryside.
1: Oh, big change. And yeah. In
2: and of itself, that transplantation, that move to the countryside, taking walks on my brakes in the country, or bike rides, a friend in the village gave me his bicycle for the year. Uh, in and of itself, that was an opening up of a receptivity to nature and to a different kind of landscape. Mm. And person who lived there, from what I had known. That's one thing. And remember, what we are as writers is going to be a function of what we are as people. Absolutely. So things that change us as people are going to change us as writers. It just follows. Mm -hmm. So that was one thing. Another thing was it was a really intense, sustained year of working on a literary project. And it crystallized My own realization that I really did want to be a writer. Okay. That was a crystallization of that. Hmm. So what did I do with that, Cody? What did I do? The only thing a pragmatic, prairie-born Canadian is going to do, I came home and went to law school. (laughs) (laughs) Because who makes a living writing books in Canada? (laughs) There was no realistic way to think about that happening. I can understand that. What I thought was that I might have a career as a lawyer, and I would work really hard to find time around the edges of that to do as much writing as I could. Right. So the second thing about the Tolkien experience with that desire <clears throat> becoming really strong. A third thing for me is very particular and personal. Because I saw all the drafts that Tolkien had done of everything, because I saw the false starts, the mistakes, the clumsy sentences, I came to realize that the most brilliant works don't just land on the table fully formed and realized. They're the product of enormously extensive rewriting. Drafting, writing. Draft Draft after draft, rethinking, abandoning a bad pathway, figuring it out better. And as a young man, as a would-be writer, learning that this majestic work, The Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. had fought its way to excellence through all of those drafts and rethinking and taking time, that was empowering for me as a young writer to accept that you're going to have bad drafts, false starts, mistakes, things that you don't
1: want another living soul right. to ever see. And then I would imagine that it's okay to do that, too, because the end result can be something like Lord of the Rings, right? Like no. it's, it's good. So those
2: are three of the things that, that I came away from that year with.
1: That's really interesting. I'm, I'm glad you shared that with us. Um, what made you want to become a writer? I was one of those kids, lucky enough to grow
2: up in a bookish household. Uh, not just my parents, my grandmother mm-hmm. was uh, one of the most well-read people I knew. Uh, I could have a vivid childhood memory of sleeping over at her house, and she had one of those uh, waist-high-to-ceiling bookshelves with a, a desk level in the lower part. And I can remember climbing up using a stool, wearing my pajamas with feet, which tell you how <laughs> young I was. <laughs> climbing up on the table part of her bookcase and just walking along when I had just learned to read and looking at all the books there and wondering what was in there. Right. So as with many writers I know, the desire to write starts with a passion for reading. Absolutely. Uh, Not every single one. There will always be exceptions. But in Mm -hmm. my case, it started with reading. Yeah. And I was writing by my mid-teens in high school. I was writing poetry. My first awards, my first recognition as an undergrad were for poetry. Mm-hmm. So I think it was embedded really early. I don't think I can identify a time when it wasn't one of the things. Right. Now, of course, what I really wanted to do was play quarterback for the
1: Bombers back right. then. <laughs> but, you know, somehow that didn't Dreams work out. Dreams change, yeah. Yeah, it's a fallback <laughs> position. Yeah. <laughs> You write fantasy as well as poetry, and you're a screenwriter. What do you enjoy about each of these genres? I think
2: my reading is charitably described as all over the map. <laughs> I have a lifelong resistance to genre labels, to okay. categories. Okay. This goes back to a paper I wrote as an undergrad. On Shakespeare's play Trigus and Cressida,
1: mm-hmm.
2: I wrote a paper called The Classification of Trigus and Cressida because I discovered that one academic would categorize it as one of Shakespeare's problem comedies, mm-hmm. and another would call it one of Shakespeare's problem tragedies. Mm-hmm. And the two of them spent their entire academic career attacking each other. And butting heads. As yeah. imbeciles, for <laughs> thinking it's a comedy and not a tragedy. And very young. I realized that we waste so much energy Mm -hmm. thinking about how do we categorize, slot, classify a work of art. Mm -hmm. And I want to ask an entirely different question, which is, is it any good? So when you ask me what I enjoy about the different genres, I'm not thinking genre when I read anything. I'm thinking, this is a writer I've already enjoyed, or this is a writer someone I respect has really recommended to me, that's how I'm approaching it. Mm. So I don't go by way of the labels,
1: I go by way of searching for excellence. That's a good way to do it because genres, is, it, it works if you own a bookstore and you're trying to just sell, sell stuff and categorize it. But as a writer, it can, it can I, get, I would imagine it almost stifles the creativity of, a little bit because you're trying to fit it into a box, right? I
2: think it stifles us as readers too, Cody, uh, listeners of music, viewers of art. If we self-define mm-hmm. too early or too strongly as this and only this is what I like, Mm -hmm. Well, bookstores will help you. You walk into a bookstore and you head towards the mystery section or the romance section or the science fiction section, and you will find books of the sort that you've decided you like. But you're walking right past an extraordinary number of books. Everything else is a good way to put it that you might find even more powerfully affect you, Hmm. but you have self-selected out from reading that kind of book. So I'm one of those people who argue against that self-selecting
1: out. Open yourself up as much as you can. Totally. I would agree with that for sure. So how do you decide what story to write next? I'm waiting for you to tell me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm being flippant, but I'm also speaking from... uh, a position of genuinely not knowing what's next. Okay. The only good thing, or one of the few good things about getting older, is that you know your own patterns, and I don't panic as much <laughs> when I don't know what's coming, because I never do. Okay. I finish a book. I'm right now going to spend the next couple of months doing promotion and marketing around North America with online things for, for Europe, About Brightness long ago, Mm -hmm. and I'm not anywhere yet with what comes next. Uh, I have friends who can get five ideas between waking up and the first cup of coffee, and I seem to get one good idea about every three years
1: we can get a lot of good ideas and never get anything done too. That's People, the other well. Thing, that's right? the point
2: about the five ideas. I agree with you too that those five ideas before coffee won't usually be five bad, unworkable <laughs> ideas.
1: <laughs> totally. Um, so it's my understanding that you have some of your work that some of your work is being made into movies. Can you tell us more about that? It's television now. What okay. happened a number
2: of years ago with uh, the Lions of Albasan? was optioned by Warner Brothers mm-hmm. for a feature film. Okay. Uh, it was going to be directed by Ed Zwick. It was going to be produced by Kathy Shulman, who had won the Oscar that year for Crash. So it was a really high-powered team yeah. behind that project, which is why uh, a skeptical curmudgeon like me was actually reasonably optimistic about it. Yeah. The problem was the script was awful. Oh. And the next script was equally awful. That's too bad. But what we learned, what I learned, what my agents learned, and I think what the industry learned, way before Game of Thrones, was big books with lots of characters, with subplots, mm-hmm. especially mine, which are very much character-driven, where you have to get to know the people. Yeah, you need to you can't get cut into them out. The plot. Yeah, mm-hmm. those can't be done in an hour and fifty-two no, minutes. No, no, you'd need three movies at least. So. Television is taken over as the more obvious uh, venue right. for dealing with the books. Right now, uh, the fan of Our Tapestry is being developed by Boatwalker Productions, who are the people who did Orphan Black. Okay. And when Orphan Block wrapped up, they were looking around for another, what they call tentpole production, a sort of major anchoring thing. Okay. It is still, I don't want to get people too excited about this because, okay. well, because it's a brutally difficult journey right. from developing to something that you can turn on Netflix or HBO and see. And most of that journey is assembling financing mm. and a team, Right. the showrunners, the writers, the cast, the directors, who are not the same as the showrunner usually right. in television. All of that, especially the financing, is a prodigiously difficult exercise. Hmm. They are smart, committed people, the team at Boat Rocker Productions. I have a lot of respect for them and a lot of liking for them. Yeah. But I don't want anyone assuming that they need to check their guidebook and see what time and what channel right. the other okay. is coming on.
1: Fair enough. Um. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about while we have a little bit of time here? I'll, I'll put the ball in your court.
2: The open-ended question. Let's talk about how desperately bad my publicists have been this spring in booking me to do a reading and a signing every night the Raptors are playing this month.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am competing with my own passions. <laughs> oh man. Guy Gabriel K, okay, I appreciate the time you spent with us here on Writers Block. And I've enjoyed reading your book, A Brightness Song Ago, tremendously. Uh, so thanks for coming down.
2: Not at all. It was a good conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Naomi Lewis writes fiction and nonfiction, edits and teaches in Calgary. Her journalism has been shortlisted for National and Provincial Magazine Awards, and she was an associate editor at Alberta Views Magazine. She has served as Writer-in-Residence at the Calgary Public Library and at the University of New Brunswick. She is the author of a novel, Cricket in a Fist, and a short story collection, I know who you remind me of. With Rona Altros, she edited the anthology Shy. Her memoir, Tiny Lights for Travelers, has just been published by the University of Alberta Press. Naomi Lewis, welcome to the CJSW Writer's Block Studio. Thank you. You're here today with your memoir that you're about to launch, Tiny Lights for Travelers. Can you give our listeners just a little bit of an overview of what
3: this this story is about? So the book is about a trip I took in the summer of 2015. My parents had found... A short journal that my grandfather wrote in July of 1942, when he escaped the Netherlands, Um, he was Jewish and he left right as all the Jews were being um, rounded up and deported. And subsequently murdered. Um, and so he escaped from the country. And he never told any of us the details of how he got out um, and what he was thinking at the time. We knew very uh, scant details of this trip that he had taken. But after his death, my parents found this journal that he had written day by day over two weeks describing exactly where he went and who he stayed with and who was helping him, um, what trains he took. And so I decided to follow his footsteps. I went to Amsterdam, which was where he was born. And, um, and then on the same dates as he had traveled, I took the same trains as much as I could. I did exactly what he did, went to the same places. And so my book is organized day by day as I took that trip and is interspersed with excerpts of my grandfather's journal from his parallel journey. Um, and I used that trip kind of as a frame to write about a whole bunch of other things as well but basically about how that history has affected my family ever since.
0: Yes. It's it's uh the way that you braid all of those those elements together is is really compelling and um, as a reader too it's a wonderful thing to hear your your opa's voice, your grandfather's voice juxtaposed with yours. And um Also, as a reader and for this interview, um, I was thinking, because there's so many different threads that you've woven together, all of them really important, maybe we can look at each thread kind of in and of itself. Sounds good. So one of the things is um, that what compelled you to take the journey is some pretty big stuff in your life.
3: Yeah, so um, I was about to turn forty, I was getting divorced, which was obviously a big a big huge change. and um, I mean, yeah, those were the big changes. And essentially, my marriage had ended, and I was trying to figure out kind of what to do next. And my marriage and divorce were really wrapped up also in kind of the question of my my own and my family's relationship with Judaism. So it all seemed very connected to me. But, you know, in fact, I had had the journal. Um, For a couple of years before that, and had been trying to figure out, I knew I wanted to write something about it, but it hadn't been clear to me exactly what to do. Um, Although it seems obvious now what I did taking that trip, it wasn't obvious at all at first that I, that that's what I should do. Um, And it only occurred to me, um, I think after my divorce, that that was something that I could do to go and take this trip. By myself and follow my grandfather's footsteps, and it just so happened that that year, twenty fifteen, uh, the dates coincided. Like the dates were in the same days of the week as they had been in nineteen forty two. Oh, fun! And so that felt like. I mean, I don't. I doubt anyone reading the book really would notice that or care. But to me, it felt like this really great parallel, and like I took a it sign. as a sign that yeah. I should do it yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: now or never. Exactly.
3: So that sounds kind of
0: easy. I'll just you know travel on the same days to the <laughs> same places um but for you, there's an added element because traveling by yourself was not something that you had done a lot of and not something that you just blithely did. Either. No,
3: it was something I had never done actually, and um Because I have an absolutely horrific sense of direction. And as I wrote about in the book, I had this kind of, not diagnosis, but semi, uh, I started, I had reason to believe that I actually had like a neurological condition that someone here at (laughs) C studies. Um. That I can't form cognitive maps and I get incredibly disoriented. And anyone who knows me well will um, confirm that. Um, I just can't find my way around at all. Like just today, coming from my house here, I had to uh, get someone to help me figure out how to get here, which is crazy.
0: And so that must somehow be this kernel of like low level anxiety all the time. Being lost is a big deal.
3: Yeah, it is. And I mean, so the way that it works um, for me, and also as I've read for people who have this condition, is like you end up memorizing landmarks and stuff. So you can find your way in familiar places without any anxiety. Like after living in the same place for a long time, I have, you know, my route to get here, my route to get there, and I can get there with no, mm-hmm. like, no great agony or thought really. But then going anywhere that's outside of my zone is like completely disorienting and... um you know, just going somewhere in Calgary that I don't go all the time. Like, it's always someone else driving because I don't drive. And I could be anywhere. Like, if someone asks me, like, oh, where is that story you went to? I have no idea, you know. And um, (laughs) it's really hard to explain to people. And usually I don't. I just kind of try to hide it or not, you know. But um, it is it is disorienting. And yes, yeah, so traveling by myself is just like my ultimate nightmare. It always has been. I have in fact traveling period, I've never really enjoyed that much until recently. Um, And one reason that I like it more now is because of GPS on my phone, obviously, kind of is like the miracle cure for this situation. Yeah, it's a security thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: If if you can't see it, at least you can see it on the screen. Yeah, yeah. The Google brain will know. Yeah, I mean, it's
3: essentially impossible to get lost if you have that, right? So it just makes, it's kind of like having, you know, if I suddenly had like a prosthetic arm where I never had an arm before, you know? So suddenly I can... I don't have to worry about this anymore, which is really nice. So that's why I was able to do this. It was really only because of GPS that I could even think about going on a trip by myself.
0: So you faced your fears. You took your GPS and you plunged in. Uh Uh-huh.
3: And what happened? So I flew from Calgary to Amsterdam, where I have relatives who I had not met or hadn't seen since I was a small child who are um, is actually my grandfather's niece and her family. So I spent uh, some time with her, and she remembered, you know my grandfather being gone during the war and then coming back. Her own father had actually gone into hiding, which is a whole other interesting story. but um, so I spent time with her. She told me kind of some things about the family that I didn't know. So that was really interesting, and it was a nice way to start. And then because I was alone for most of the time. And then I traveled, as my grandfather had, um, through Belgium. So my first stop was in Brussels. And I stayed there um, for the same number of nights as he did. And I actually met up with my like new romance, <laughs> my new romantic partner there, because he was in Italy he's Italian um so or you know Italian Canadian so anyway there's a kind of like little love story in there because we spent a couple of nights together in Belgium um which which I did think of kind of as cheating in terms of like going off script but at the same time I it ended up being kind of a nice part of the story mm-hmm. and um, it was part of
0: the newness of your life yes. too and a validation of of that
3: yes absolutely absolutely and then I went on through France. So the ultimate, ultimately, my grandfather and I ended up in Lyon. So I went um, through a series of small towns and also stopped in Paris, as he did. And um, as he did, I left Paris in one direction and then came back to Paris and then went in another direction because he he had found a dead end mm-hmm. and ended up having to backtrack and then go again. So this was really a matter for him of... Um, going to a place where he had a connection and then they would connect him with someone else in another place and there was this kind of network of people that were helping jews and other um other uh what's the word he used for himself outlaws out of the country i think yeah. that was the word that he used um and so he had this kind of network of people helping him and I mean his journal is written in a in a quite a kind of dry and distant voice considering how much danger he was in but he was in I mean it's it's actually kind of astounding to think about he didn't really know who to trust Um, there were definitely cases he'd heard of of people you know paying someone to help them and the person would just take the money and abandon them them. or even betray them so he was in constant danger Um, never knew exactly what direction to go in of course like he had a fake passport but didn't really know like he could have easily been caught and there's like you know german officers everywhere of course he's he's going through occupied france so Mm -hmm. um this is like german territory at the time so uh yeah like he always had to depend on people who you know in some cases he knew well and in some cases he had met like that day right Mm -hmm. so and then, you know, at the point actually where he turned back, he wasn't sure whether to go back or not or try to cross over in the night because he was near a border. And it turned out that would have been a terrible decision and he probably would have been caught. So there's all these really close calls. It's, uh, so he had to
0: trust his his vague connections and he also really had to make on the spot, on the fly decisions and trust his intuition.
3: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, he did trust his intuition. At, at times though, I mean, he writes about making a decision where he's like, if the train comes in the next 10 minutes, I'll get on it, and if it doesn't, I'll stay here, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, luckily worked out. But Yeah. Yeah.
0: There there's a quote so so your your Opus voice is, you know, pieces of his journal are present in the book in his voice. And there's a quote where he says, um, right at the beginning, it is merely a matter of fact travelogue from which few, if any, extraordinary or ordinary facts will be admit, omitted. Yeah. And, you know, that's the premise. Yeah. And yet, as a reader, I also felt like you could see glimpses of his humor, yes. his, um, uh, you know, his opinions about people. Yes. Even yes. though they were helping him. Yeah, he he has these observations about his journey that are really wry and, um, yeah, funny. Yeah, sometimes it's really funny what how he views it. Like in great peril, you know, he still has the wherewithal to not only think those thoughts but then also write them down for you to find later.
3: And he actually even writes about how odd it is that he's not panicking more that he, like you know, sometimes the people around him. Um, At one point when he has to cross a river in the middle of the night with quite a few other people and they're all panicking and he's not, he's like, it's actually strange that I'm not panicking, but he does have the, and that he almost like was having fun as a tourist at some points. Um, like he just couldn't absorb the danger of his situation almost until he looked back on it. But yeah, he does have this, like he maintained a kind of calm, observant eye the whole time. Mm -hmm. And I mean, he, it was about his voice and his sense of humor. I mean, he wrote this long before, I mean, long, long before I was born, Um, you know, he was 70 when I was born. He was 33 when he wrote this, but he, it's the same guy, you know, um, that I knew, which is, was also really amazing to me, especially when I first read it, that it was like hearing his voice from beyond the grave. You know, I hadn't talked to him in a long time, of course, because he had died and he had had Alzheimer's for 10 years before he died. And um, it was like, getting to talk to him again, or Mm -hmm. at least getting to listen to him talk again.
0: And listening to him tell you stories that he chose not to talk about during his lifetime. Yes. Which must have had, you know, must have changed everything that you remembered after that, right? Like, you can't go back to the same, I would would imagine.
3: Yeah, I mean... You know, there's stories that I sort of had vague notions of that he had sort of told my grandmother and then he, she had told my mother and then my mother told me like, you know, Opa had to cross a river in the middle of the night. Like that was like a one sentence summary of mm-hmm. this 30 page journal, basically. And um, so, of course, to see that expanded out like this was amazing. Um, you know, like as much as I wish there were, there was nothing really in there that was like a huge shock. Um, It wasn't like a salacious or sensational thing to read. It wasn't like anything happened that blew my mind exactly. But um, it was just those details and his voice that expanded this story that I'd only heard in these snippets. I mean, I knew, of course, I knew that his mother, he had been living with his mother. He left her behind thinking she'd be all right, and she wasn't. She was arrested and died in a concentration camp, and that was like this shadow over my family my whole life. Mm -hmm. And that was the reason we were never to talk about this, because he, you know, just bringing it up would upset him too much, and my mother had never been allowed to ask him about it, and I wasn't, like, we were not to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Out of respect. and Not just respect, but out of fear that he couldn't take it, kind of thing. It was like, this sort of like he's only able to function if he for forgets that this happens or if it is never mentioned, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it was almost out of fear more out of, than out of respect. At least that was the feeling I had, you know. Fear that
0: if that, those questions might unhinge him and yeah. hurt him. Yeah. And he'd already endured enough hurt.
3: Yes. Yes. Hmm. Yes. Basically, yes. Um, fear that he would fall apart. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, here, here it was dated in this sort of matter-of-fact way. Although, you know, when he wrote that, he didn't know what the outcome was going to be. And in that way, he was a different person. Like, that was something very poignant about it, was that he wrote this before the events that changed his life actually occurred, mm-hmm. right? Like, the... The, the trauma of his mother dying, being murdered, um, the trauma of, well, I don't know if it was trauma, but his time in the military. Um, it was before he met my grandmother. It was before he had children. It was before, um, I mean, his career took off. You know, it was before all these things happened that made him who he was going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, it was like this innocent version of him in a way.
0: Mm-hmm. and. He had, in a sense, before the war, he had a a privileged kind of life. Absolutely. He was educated. When he traveled in his exodus, he was actually revisiting places they'd holidayed. Yeah. Reconnecting with people they may have met. He had an established career with Royal Dutch Shell. Yes. That he lost because the Germans took it over. Yeah. Um, so he, he came from this place of privilege and I, I think it's really interesting how it illustrates Europe before and after, mm-hmm. too, just in in through his experience. So he makes it out mm-hmm. and then makes it to England, right? Right. And meets your grandmother. Yes. And, and then eventually comes to Canada and starts this whole new life.
3: Well, actually, no. So um that's not quite what the timeline was. So He met my grandmother. So after um, he stopped his journal, his journey did continue. Um, He left southern France before that part of France was occupied by Germany, kind of just under the wire. A lot of people who had escaped that far didn't make it past that and ended up being captured there. Um, And so I don't know the details still of the rest of his journey, Mm -hmm. which was through Portugal and Spain to England, where he ended up in the military and... My grandmother was also in the military and that's how they met. Um, And then my mother was born in England. So they got married during the war. My mother was born right at the end of the war in August 1945, so like right at the end of the war. And my grandfather went back. He was still in the military, so he was sent back to Holland. My mother was still in England. I mean, sorry, my grandmother was still in England with my mother who was a baby. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then... Um, My mother actually grew up in Holland for the first 10 years, and my aunt, who was born just a year later, um, and then when my mother was 10, my grandmother left my grandfather. I wrote about this, took my mother and my aunt back to England without him, and then a year later, he followed them, and my grandparents reconciled, and my mother and aunt grew up. In England. And then it was actually years later after I was born, my parents, my aunt and uncle had moved to Canada, my parents moved to the States and then Canada, and then my grandparents moved to Canada. So they already had grandchildren when they moved to Canada. Ah, okay. Yeah. All right. And so your
0: grandmother was not Jewish and not Dutch. Right. And so you yourself grew up with all these sort of multicultural traditions woven into your upbringing.
3: Yes, and my father's family is also um, Jewish, but from Poland. So yeah, lots of different mm-hmm. uh, yeah threads there. And
0: the one sort of prevailing note in that was that you weren't raised in a particularly devout uh, Jewish way.
3: We weren't raised in a Jewish way at all. I remember not even knowing that we were Jewish, or that my that we were sort of Jewish, or my dad was Jewish, my mom was half Jewish. I didn't know that um, until I asked. I think why we didn't go to church or whatever. Yeah,
0: and so it didn't really matter until you got married.
3: Well, it did matter. I had been thinking about it. You know, it was sort of like this. Element of curiosity. My father had been raised in a like a more traditional family. I wouldn't say religious. Like there's a certain way that the Jewish family is going to be quite traditional without being religious at all. And my father's family's like that. I would say, I it was always an element of my family's history that I was curious about and that I kind of pointedly didn't know anything about. And almost like at a certain point, and my sister felt this way. I mean, my sister and I talked about this um just feeling like it was almost something that we had been purposely not taught about um which is the case in a way i mean my parents had in a way consciously decided not to be religious um for like reasons that were thought out you know mm-hmm. um and so we weren't part of the jewish community at all we didn't know other jewish people we didn't even know like when it was Passover, except for the fact that all of a sudden we were, you know, my grandmother, my dad's mother would call and, and because it was Passover, and we were kind of like, what's Passover? Mm -hmm. You know, so there was this tension there, too, because my father's family was more traditional, my mother's family, my mother's parents were like, almost zealously atheistic. Um, I mean, not almost, they were zealously atheistic. So
0: there was a good reason for that upbringing of neutrality.
3: Right. Yes. It was, you know, the the I think the intention was neutrality, but it's harder it was harder than it seemed to be to maintain that, I think, for my parents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so
0: for you yourself, you began an exploration into what your roots meant to you.
3: Yes, and that was before it, I got married. I mean, I would say I started researching a lot, reading a lot about Judaism and about the Holocaust, and almost, like, I got really, I don't want to say obsessed, but preoccupied. Um, And I had been for, like, quite a long time. Like, this was something that I kind of really wanted to know about. And and then when I met my now ex-husband, I was really looking, like, really searching for that identity. And I had never... I didn't. I barely. I mean, I my best friend, like my long time best friend, is is Jewish, um, but most of the people I know aren't. And I never, certainly never dated anyone Jewish. Um, and the idea of dating someone Jewish just suddenly like really, really appealed to me. And I'm not saying that's the only thing about him that made me date him, because that's like uh, that would be ridiculous. But um, that really drew me into that situation. I think the idea of being um, it seemed like an opportunity to learn how to be Jewish and, mm-hmm. and to be accepted into a Jewish family and to be like a Jewish wife. And um, I, I think I had an idea, a, a strong feeling that I would find something there that would be like a, a remedy for this feeling of um, uncomfortable ambiguity and anxiety that I had always kind of struggled with.
0: And what did you find
3: that you worked very hard at it? Well, you know, I I learned that I, you know, it's not a very satisfying conclusion either for me or for the book, obviously, but I didn't, I I did not find a place that felt comfortable for me um, in that tradition. Um, I think, you know, I, I realized that I really am a very a-religious person, and I'm not really a joiner, and I'm not very conventional, and all these things that I thought I had learned as a growing up, that I wondered if were really me, or just what I grew up with. So atheism, and, and not being a joiner, and all these things that I kind of learned from my parents, I wondered if they were really me, and it turns out they were. <laughs> so um,
0: and my sense is that that's kind of who your opa was.
3: Yeah, and, absolutely. It was, it is what my opa was. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you may not belong in that version of the faith. And yet all of those explorations enrich you as a human being, enrich yes. you as a writer, Yes, Um, enrich your understanding of the world. And, and that's what also really comes out in the book that, you know, you, you went on this journey. It, It made you do even more research about something that had preoccupied you for a long time. And you found a way to put that into a perspective and tell a a page turning story about it Mm -hmm. that teaches us who read it other elements that we may not have thought of.
3: Oh, thank you. But yeah, I mean, I don't regret anything that I've done or that's happened to me um at all and uh, absolutely that it, I learned a lot from all of the things that I wrote about in that book. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So Naomi, you are uh you started with short stories then you wrote a novel and now you've written a memoir. You've also worked as an editor mm-hmm. um working with other people yes. in in anthologies. What's the, what are the differences you know between a memoir and a novel? What have you learned about the craft from trying a different genre?
3: Um, well, I mean, they're all really different, right? And I've also written nonfiction, like, for magazines, like mm-hmm. jur- journalism. Um, and, they're, I mean, they're all incredibly different. I find it amazing how some people... I mean, you're a poet, and I can't write poetry at all, so I don't know why, like, for some of us, like, one, you know, genre works and another one doesn't, but it seems like, for me fiction and nonfiction, like, work, the way that my brain works, which is maybe, like, that I need to tell, like, as, in a way, a straightforward narrative that I kind of think in stories. Um, And I I mean, the difference, uh, like, the obvious difference between a memoir and a novel is that with a memoir, you're more stuck with what actually happened, and you can't just change it because it doesn't make a good story or add something because it's more interesting or because it fits better thematically. But, you know, I do think that having said that there the line between fiction and nonfiction is very blurry and you know I don't want to say I mean I'm writing a novel now and it's certainly not autobiographical at all but I think like whenever we're writing fiction there's or whenever I'm writing fiction I mean it's ultimately you're writing about your inner landscape you're it's going to take the shape of your own brain right like the author's yeah, imprint is are, on Your it. soul
0: has this huge imprint on every character you create how yeah exactly
3: exactly yeah and um with non-fiction it's through your lens and I mean anyone who reads this inevitably who I've written about is gonna have issues um with how I've presented them or how I presented what happened and it's not because I'm Making things up it's because everyone remembers things differently and it's just inevitable, right so yeah I mean, memory
0: is a treacherous thing
3: absolutely and so i don't I don't know that I would draw a really firm line between writing a novel and writing a memoir in that way um because ultimately they're both just kind of the way I see it right yeah, yeah,
0: so you're about to launch this book um and and you can't hide now and say, well, that's just my character. Yeah. Doing that.
3: So, <laughs> yeah. How does that feel? It feels really scary. Yeah, it feels really scary. I have definitely, you know, it's like I said to someone when I was writing about this, if someone doesn't like your memoir, it's basically that they don't like you. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, that's fine. Like, not everyone has to like me. And I know that some people won't. Um, I know that some people don't like the way that I write or this book. And that's that's okay um i you know it's more i ho- i know that people that i've written about might feel i don't know how they'll feel about it you know mm-hmm. i don't know and so that's that's a little bit tough um i think most people understand that you know it's it's through it's Yeah, it's filtered through me, and I'm not saying, oops, I'm not saying this is the final truth, right? I'm saying this is... This is my version of it today. Right, and it's not like the truth about my entire life. I, um, It's kind of like the events in my life that have pertained to this question of my identity as a Jew, um, and not all of them, right? So... Yeah, It's, you know, like writing a memoir, you are definitely shaping a story. You're deciding. It's not an autobiography. It's about one element of your life. And you pick and choose what you're going to include and how you're going to um, present it in order to shed light on that one question. And so in in that way, you're very much creating something.
0: Right, because the choices you're making of what to include and what to exclude are about the power of the story you're crafting. Yes. Not about the essential truth.
3: Exactly, exactly. And, you know, certainly there's characters in the story that I went out of my way to disguise. And so, I mean, sometimes I went pretty far in order to disguise people. And so, you know, even in that way, there's this kind of blurred line between fiction and nonfiction as mm-hmm. well. And, and also between what really happened and who... A person I'm writing about really is and whether there's real people in this book right mm-hmm. but yeah. I, I mean to get back to your question I do feel more vulnerable having written this than I have with fiction
0: yeah I can I can understand that I th- I think that I've heard that from many people yeah who, you know who write something very personal but
3: I mean how could you not right like you're putting as your yourself you're like here I am this yeah. is this is me. Oh, yeah, naked. <laughs> yeah. <Like> my words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, it's a very compelling story. Um, thank you very much for sharing it with the world and for sharing it with our listeners.
3: Thank you, Dymphne. Uh, my book launch is being hosted by Wordfest at their space at Memorial Park Library on the evening of June 25th. Check out wordfest.com for tickets
0: to Naomi Lewis's launch of. Tiny Lights for Travellers. Thank you for listening to Writer's Block. The opening and closing theme for our show is Cloud Chaser by Local Band 36. You can hear more music from them at whatis36.com.